Thank you, Jonathan. So our scripture reading this morning comes from 1 Samuel chapter 17. <clears throat> we are continuing a series through 1 and 2 Samuel. Uh, we're not really going verse by verse as much as we're focusing on a couple of the different major themes. In 1 Samuel, one of the themes being the ark of God or God's presence, the way God works and, and dwells among his people, and the kind of life uh, that is possible uh, if you live in such close communion and connection with uh, the Lord and so this morning we come to probably one of the most well-known, uh, famous texts in all of that material. It's the story of David and his battle against the giant Goliath. And so we're going to read, it's a long passage, uh, and I've even broken it up to make it a little shorter. It's still long. And so bear with me, but it is worth the telling because we really could just read the story, pray, and go home. Uh, it is such a wonderful uh, telling. So let's begin in verse 1. We're going, to read, um, we're going to read from verse 1 to verse 11 and then skip down to 32 and read through verse 37 and then pick it back up again at verse 40 through verse 52. The easiest way probably will be to follow along in the worship folder. It's printed for you there. It'll also be on the screen behind me. If you're watching from home, it should be on your screen as well. Let's read together. This is a wonderful story. <clears throat> now, the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Sukkah, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Sukkah and Azekah, in Ephes Damim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them. And there came out of the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head. And he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs, and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. And the shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. And his shield-bearer went before him, and he stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. And when Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Now skip down to verse 32. And David said to Saul, because David shows up on the scene in the midst of all of this, he said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, you are not able to go against this Philistine and fight with him, for you are but a youth. And he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and and took a lamb from the flock. I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And he, if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. David's quite brash. David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go. And the Lord be with you. Good luck, David. Actually, I think it's a little more than that, but you can, you can see it that way. And then he took his staff in his hand, 
chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in the shepherd's pouch and a sling was in his hand and he approached the Philistine and the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, I am, am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. And the Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. And then David said to the Philistine, and this is the really important part, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and cut off your head and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth. That all the earth might know that there is a God in Israel. And that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hand. And when the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his back, and he took out a stone, and he slung it, and he struck the Philistine on the forehead. And the stone sank into his forehead, and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. And there was no sword in the hand of David. And then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head. And when the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sha'araim as far as Gath and Ekron. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Say with me, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. <clears throat> so the theme of this text is again made very clear by the repetition of a particular root. It appears six times in verse 10, in verse 25, twice in verse 26, again in verse 36 and 45. And the root is harap or harap. And that makes my job easy when that happens because when you know what the text is about, then you know what the sermon should be about because of course the sermon should be about the text, okay? And this text is about the dishonoring of God's name. What's at stake in this scene is God's reputation or God's place in the imagination of his people. How big God is in the mindset and the perspective and the imagination of those who serve him. Goliath, Goliath's taunts mocked the Lord. They defied God. You see these words repeated over and over again. They were contemptuous and boastful. And that is what got David so worked up. He says in verse 26, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the army of the living God? David came upon the scene and he could not believe what he heard. He was incredulous that God would be so openly mocked and that no one was doing anything about it. And as you read, what's interesting is, is the problem wasn't just Goliath's boast. The problem was also Israel's cowardice. It was Saul and the whole army standing around, letting all of this happen, doing nothing. So what we, what we learn is that Goliath was not the only one defying God. 
he was not the only one dishonoring God. Saul and his men were too by being so frozen with fear while God's name was being dragged around in the mud, only made worse by their inaction. But enter David, right? And it's important to note that this is our introduction to this boy who will become a man who will become king named David. It is the first time in the scriptures that he takes center stage. It is the first words we ever hear him speak. And so in many ways, what we see here of David is what is most characteristic of him in all of the other places that we find him in the scriptures. Not just this moment here at the beginning, but for all of the rest of his life and everything else he does, this is what is most true of him and why he is so revered, not only in the Bible, but by the people of God through the ages. I think Eugene Peterson captured it better than anybody. He captured it so well in describing the difference in David. He said, when David showed up, Goliath dominated the scene. Goliath was the, what centered the world. And Saul and his army, they had a Goliath-dominated imagination were the words that he used, but not David. So here's what Eugene Pearson wrote. He said, the only person fully in touch with reality that day was David. Because, he goes on to say, reality is made up mostly of what we can't see. Let me say it again, okay? That the only person fully in touch with reality that day was David. Because reality is made up of what we mostly can't see. David had a God-dominated imagination, or what Eugene Peterson again called a striking immersion in God reality. And that is really the only way to honor God. That is the way God is honored among his people, is for us to live with that same kind of striking immersion in God reality that causes us to live not by sight, but in fact by faith, as the Apostle Paul said. We live by faith, not by sight. But let me ask you a question that you can ponder as we go through this text together. Do you, do you, do you have a God, uh, an immersion in God reality, a God-dominated imagination? What is more real? What is more real for you most times? What you can see or what you believe? That is what we want to explore. And there really is just a contrast. Again, there's some contrasting that the, that the author is doing here. But we want to see this played out in all of the different players that, that show up in this scene. And really we want to see first the faithless king, Saul, cowering, you know, hiding from this Philistine giant. Then we want to look at David, who is the upstart, the kingly upstart, who steps in and does what King Saul should be doing but then ultimately what we're going to see is when we look at David, we are pointed towards the ultimate champion, the Lord Jesus Christ himself and the work that he has accomplished on our behalf. Now, Goliath kind of is the setting for everybody else to find their place in the story in many ways. But we want to see Saul and then David and then King Jesus. Uh, and hopefully our hearts will be encouraged as we go through the text. Okay, first, let's, let's talk about the faithless king, about Saul. Again, Saul doesn't come off really well here. He doesn't really come off well anywhere in 1 Samuel. That's somewhat the point. But in Saul, we see the need for a God-dominated imagination because without it, you will, just like he did, lack the courage that you need to live a life of faith. David's words, as he showed up there in verse 32, 
which I don't think are part of what, no it is, it's part of what we read. They clearly expose the problem. David shows up, he takes in the scene, he goes to see Saul, and here are his words to Saul. This is the young man encouraging the old man king. Okay, get that. He says, let no man's heart fail because of that Philistine. And of course, the first 31 verses of, of the chapter were a long description of how everyone's heart was failing. Everybody's heart was failing. They collectively had lost their courage. I mean, we're told the Philistine army is lined up on one side of the valley, and the Israelites are lined up on the other side of the valley, up on the hills. They call it mountains, but not, I mean, don't like hills. Mulberry mountains, maybe, like those things. You know what I'm talking about? The phosphate mountains, that, you know, maybe that. And the, Isra the Israelites are there, and the Philistine, every day the champion would come out, and he would challenge them and say, bring somebody out, meet me in the middle here, and we'll, and we'll duel this out. And then in verse 11, it says, when Saul and all Israel heard his words, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. And the words there are very specific. They mean they were frozen with fear. They were just frozen in place, unable to move or take any action because they were so afraid and so overly just destroyed and intimidated by this man. Saul was himself a sort of giant. Do you remember how he was described earlier in 1 Samuel? It said that he towered over the rest of the people. That is why they chose him to be their king. Because he was so big. But in this moment, and for this moment, Saul was not being king as he should be. He wasn't being kingly at all. And the king's army was not being kingly. They did not have the courage to meet Goliath's challenge because they suffered from Goliath terror, Goliath phobia, a Goliath-dominated imagination, and they cowered in fear. <clears throat> Alistair McIntyre, in his book, After Virtue, talks about how the curriculum of the ancient world always included courage. The ancients realized that if they were going to train their kids well and train people well, they had to train them in courage. It was one of the most important things in the moral formation of people because in those days, you couldn't live without courage. I mean, it was impossible to do so. There were wars constantly. You didn't know when some, you know, rival tribe was going to invade and try to kill you. There were pestilence and plagues that swept through very much more often than we've experienced in the history of our nation. There was a heightened sense of vulnerability. If you got sick, I mean, you were probably going to die. More than half of children died before they could even reach adulthood. And so, Faced with all of these things, you had to have courage. I mean, just to get out of the bed in the morning, you had to have courage. Now, we still need courage, but in a lot of ways, our life is insulated from some of those things. Mostly, courage is required of us in episodes. When you get a surprise diagnosis, for example, or during a round of layoffs that you're going through at work. But it's not the same. And so, we don't work on courage much anymore. In fact, what we've done is we've replaced all that moral training and courage with trying to train people on how to have positive self-esteem. And, and unfortunately, what we do is we conflate the two of those things. So courage now means learning how to believe in yourself when nobody else believes in you. Learning how to look at yourself to find the confidence that you need to go out and do the hard things in life. That is our dogma and it's really ruining us in many ways. See, Goliath is representative of a certain way to get courage, the world's conception of what courage is and how to deal with fear because he was physically imposing. He was high-tech. I mean, David's low-tech, Goliath's high-tech. 
Goliath had superior weaponry and armor, uh, all of it made of bronze, which was really high tech because this is, this is kind of the dawn of the Bronze Age. David had a sling and five stones. He was outmatched in every way. And so Goliath was not only physically imposing, he was not only high tech, he had self-esteem. I mean, look at the way he's talking. I mean, which is how the world typically defines courage. Banishing fearful thoughts by looking at yourself with confidence. Banishing thoughts of failure or disaster by thinking positively about your fear. I mean, fear is basically now self-doubt. So you've got to learn to think better about yourself and then you won't be afraid. And this is very typical. You get courage through visual, visualization and positive thinking and just, and just imagining your life and yourself differently. But the biblical narrative offers it as a counterfeit courage. Not the real thing, in fact, because according to the Bible, courage is being able to do the right thing regardless of the danger or the consequences, regardless of how overwhelming it might feel, regardless of how outmatched you know yourself to be. Courage is being able to face your greatest nightmare, your biggest fear, and do the right thing and not melt down and trust God and love him with all of your heart and keep loving other people. See, we, we are in so many ways, because again, we're absent from our culture is this training and courage and moral courage. And as a result, we are in many ways wreaking havoc in our life through our cowardice. When our greatest fears, when we give in to our greatest fears, when we live in them, when we become frozen because of them or controlling because of them, it unleashes just a tidal wave, tidal wave, tidal wave, I can't, I can't get that out, of devastation and trouble. Now, I could give you so many different examples. I mean, there's so many, but I want to be as quick as possible this morning. And so let me just give you one that I read this week because I found it so fascinating. I ran, I ran across an article from the Journal of Pediatrics this week because it came across my Twitter feed, and people just kept talking about it, so I, uh, I looked at it. But this journal, again, this is Scientific Medical Journal, it was linking, it was, a, it was a journal article linking the rates, rising ranks of anxiety and depression among school-aged children with declining independent activity on the part of those kids. So here's one of the, one of the lines from the article. A primary cause of the rise of mental disorders in children is a decline over decades in opportunities for children and teens to play roam and engage in other activities independent of direct oversight and control by adults. And the conclusion the article came to is this, we are over-parenting our children into depression. Let me say it another way. The lack of courage that we are showing in our parenting is producing a lack of courage in our kids that has them failing and, thr and, and not thriving to such a degree that it is now becoming a national and international health crisis. It's what happens when we allow our fear to get the best of, it and, and best of us and cause it become paralyzed in the midst of it. See, fear, fear can cause all kinds of trouble, your worries and your fears and your anxieties and your nightmares. That's why you have to fight. You have to fight against it because it makes you self-absorbed. Fear is the opposite of love. Perfect love casts out fear, the Bible says. When you're afraid, you act in selfish ways and you will not love God as you should. You will, you'll find it hard to love others and put their needs ahead of your own. When you parent out of fear, you'll, you'll, be, you know, you'll, you'll love not enough or love too much because your loves are all out of orders. And this is sin. Sin is selfishly loving yourself more than you love God. 
Pursuing your own comfort and peace is, is more important than doing good to others. And you can boil sin down to those two things in almost every single instance. And this text is helpful because it shows us how this happens. Goliath is so big. He's so big. I mean, in the, in the text, he's so big. And in fact, there's an uncharacteristic specification of Goliath's girth that's given to us here. In modern novels, there is lots of detailed description of characters and setting. That's one of the features of our stories. But in ancient Hebrew narrative, there are, there are never these details. There are always very few details. So to take so much time to describe Goliath as is done here in the text is very untypical. And it is part of what the point that the narrator here is trying to make. It tells us in verse 4 that he is six cubits in a span tall. He's over eight feet tall. I mean, so Rick Lear, add a foot and a half. Timo Strawbridge, plus a foot and a half, something like that. Think about that. A helmet of bronze, it says, verse 5. Coat of mail weighing 5,000 shekels of bronze. That's 125 pounds of armor that he's carrying around on him. Bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze, verse 6 and 7. A spearhead weighing... 600 shekels, all these things. We get all these details. Goliath is in the text the way that he is in Saul's imagination. Goliath is presented in the text the way that the scary things are in the way that we get wrapped up in them in our own heart and life. Saul's imagination has been ruined because it extends only to what he can see. And here's this giant man, Goliath, like nothing he's ever seen before. And it overwhelms him. He has fear of Goliath, not fear of the Lord. Goliath is so big that God has become small. And see, the key to being courageous is not self-confidence. It is God-confidence. And if you're allowing your worry to get the best of you and it's making an absolute mess of things, then what you need is to get back in touch with reality, which mostly consists of things that cannot be seen but have to be believed. You need a God-dominated imagination. And that is where David comes in. Because the second thing we see here is the upstart, the kingly upstart, this young man David who will ultimately be king. And David is an example of how to live with a God-dominated imagination and the kind of courage that that makes possible. I mean, David, David arrived on the battlefield bringing supplies to his brothers from home. That's verses 20 and 22. 20 through 22, we didn't read that part. And he took in the scene, and he was appalled at the arrogant boast from Goliath and the passivity and the cowardice of the army. They both, they both were appalling to him. And he was provoked, and he began to provoke the troops, and eventually found himself before Saul offering to fight Goliath in single combat. I mean, David was the only one in this whole thing who was acting kingly against all odds who was willing to act for the honor of God's name among his people and among the whole earth. And just as the text is dominated by Goliath's bigness, so it is equally dominated by David's smallness. We keep, reminding, keep being reminded as we read of just how small David is, of his youth and inexperience. So first by the narrator in verse 13, if you have a Bible, you can see that there. He is describing David comes and David's from Jesse's house, and Jesse has eight sons. And as he's describing Jesse's eight son, he reminds us yet again that David is the youngest. It's the runt, and you read it, and it's like, well, I don't. Why do I need that detail? Why do you keep like you keep like throwing shade at David all the time, man? We get it. He's the runt. Okay, we get it. But he can't talk about David without making sure we know how puny he is. 
And then as he shows up, his older brother, his oldest brother, because which, you know, in the history of the world, what older brother has never, you know, looked down on his little brother? Eliab rebuked him as he overheard him talking with the soldiers, then insulted him by reminding him of his low ranking in the family. He basically said to David, what are you doing here? Go back, go back to the sheep. This is no place for little boys, he said. And then Saul later, in verse 33, when David was brought to him, Saul doubted him. He said, you're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth. And he is a man of war. And then, of course, Goliath himself on the battlefield. It says he disdained him, verse 42, because he was so small. He insulted David. He taunted him. My dog, that you would come to me with sticks, he said. So all the way through, I mean, all the way through this whole thing, David was dismissed. He was looked down on. He was thought little of for being too young, for being too inexperienced, for being too small, for being too weak. And Eugene Peterson, again, I think, made a great point. He said, the same debased imagination that treated Goliath as important treated David as insignificant. The men who were in awe of Goliath were contemptuous of David. Their imaginations were so ruined by Goliath watching that they were incapable of seeing the good and the true and the beautiful. Because after all of this, do you remember from last week in chapter 16? After all of this, they were still looking at only outward appearance. And they saw Goliath's bigness and they were terrified. And they saw David's smallness and they were contemptuous. Saul and the army, David's brothers, the nation, you and me. The problem is, is we do not see as God sees. Now, modern psychology would say to David, don't listen to them. Just believe in yourself, man. It's going to be okay. But that is not where David's courage came from. Let's look specifically at his words because his words really tell the story of his heart, I think. He speaks three times in the text. Well, he speaks more than that, but really there's three, there's three, um, three main sections of what he says. So first in verse 26, which I don't think, that's not part of what we read, is it? But in verse 26, if you have a Bible, but if not, I can read it for, I can just read it to you. He says, as he comes upon the scene uh, with the army there, he says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine? that he should defy the armies of the living God. Now, that's an insult if you didn't catch it. Who does that guy think he is talking that way about the Lord? He is not awed by Goliath. He's disgusted. He's awed by God. Right? And then to Saul, verse 37. Now, we did read this one. He says, the Lord, I love this. Isn't this great? The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. Don't worry, Saul, it's gonna be okay. And then to Goliath himself, which is the main part of the text in verses 45 through 47, he says, you, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the army of Israel, who you have defied. This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and that all of the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And that all of this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword or spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. Do you see 
in all, reading all of those things, I just, do you see how much God figures into the way David thinks and acts? You see that? His imagination is dominated by God's power and his love and his commitment to his people. And because of that, David is the only one who sees as God sees. Goliath is big. Yes. And David is small. Yes. But for David, none of that matters because God is the biggest. And Goliath lumbers out onto the battlefield with his high-tech weaponry and his 120 pounds of armor because he believes that battles are won with military force. David goes out armorless with a slingshot and some stones, but full of courage because his weapon is God's name. That's what he says, right? You come to me with a sword and with a spear. I come to you in the name of the Lord. God's, his weapon is God's name, God's character, his history of saving him from the lion and the bear, his hope, his hope that God will yet rescue him again to make a name for himself so that both the Israelites and the Philistines and the whole earth and all the way thousands of years later, you and me would know that there is a God of inexhaustible greatness and an army, a whole army of eight-foot giants is like a colony of ants to him. And he's a God of inexhaustible goodness. His love and his mercy never fail. I mean, go back to the call of worship that we started the service with. He is a great God, a great king above all gods who holds the depths and the heights in his hands because he made all things and he reigns over all things and there is none greater. But he is a good God, the Lord our shepherd, and there is none gooder. There's none truer. So listen to Eugene Peterson again. He says, and if you're not catching on, you ought to buy the book and read it. It's amazing. I mean, he is amazing. He just says it better than me. He says, David, David entered the Valley of Elah with a God-dominated, not a Goliath-dominated imagination. God was the reality with which David had to do. I love that phrase. God was the reality which, with, with which David had to do. Giants didn't figure largely into David's understanding of the world, the real world. <laughs> In Bethlehem, in the hills of Bethlehem, in the meadows, tending his father's sheep, David was immersed in the largeness and the immediacy of God, he writes. He had experienced God's strength in protecting the sheep in his fights with the lions and the bears. He had practiced the presence of God so thoroughly that God's word, which he couldn't literally hear, was far more real to him than the lion's roar, which he could hear. He had worshipped the majesty of God so continuously that God's love, which he could not see, was far more real to him than the bear's ferocity, which he could see. His praying and his singing, his meditation and adoration had shaped an imagination in him that set each sheep and lamb and bear and lion and giant into something large and vast and robust. God. He was thoroughly God-dominated, he writes. And so he went out when no one else would, against all odds, trusting only in the Lord, and he won. Right? See, courage. Courage comes not from self-confidence. It comes from God-confidence. It comes from the strength of the convictions that you have about God. It comes from being so God-dominated that you're able to see things imaginatively and to see as God sees 
and to walk by faith and not by sight. But is God the reality with which you have to do? Does God's word, his promises, his power, his faithfulness, faithfulness do they dominate your imagination? I mean, we tend to get into the middle of scary situations, facing down giants, and forget that God fights the battle, not us. We tend to read stories like this, and we cast ourselves in the role of David, and we moralize the text, and we say, you just got to believe in yourself and get out there, and your, your, and, and your giants will fall. You got to have the faith of J- David, and if you can find the faith of J- David, then the giants will fall. And if they aren't falling, of course, that means then you don't have the faith of David. You don't have enough faith. But see, the way we do all of that, it misses the point entirely. It's just a spiritualized version of Goliath's counterfeit Courage. It's just another form of works righteousness. It's if you really dig into that way of even talking about this text, really at the bottom of that is just trust in yourself, trust in your faith, not in God's name. And so lastly, we have to go where the text ultimately leads us. And that is to see in the way this text plays out the true champion, the Lord Jesus Christ. Another word that gets repeated over and over again, which becomes a theme in this text, is the word champion. You find it repeated over and over again. And it literally means the man in between. Goliath was the Philistine champion. And he came out each day from the camp of the Philistines, and he stood between the army and Israel's army, and he challenged Israel to themselves name a champion to meet him on the battlefield in single combat. Now, this was common in ancient warfare. Instead of two armies clashing together and hundreds and thousands of men being killed in the battle. Instead, each side would choose a champion to fight as their legal representative. And if their champion won, then it was as if the whole army won the battle. And if the champion lost, then they all lost. And so what Goliath is proposing here is that you pick somebody. I'm, I'm, I'm the Philistine champion. You guys pick somebody and we'll fight. And if I win, then you lose and you serve us. But if I lose, then you win and we serve you. Do you see that? If Goliath won, then the Philistines won and Israel was defeated and would serve them. But if Goliath lost, if David won, then Israel won and the Philistines would serve them. So the army would choose a champion to fight for them, to fight as them. And if he won, they won. And if he lost, they all lost. And the outcome was imputed to the rest of the people. So David, as he goes out, as Israel's chosen champion, he won the battle, but he won the battle for all of Israel because he fought the battle as Israel. Now, you can see where I'm going with this probably, can't you? Maybe so. In Hebrews chapter 11, in the Hall of Faith, all the great heroes of the faith are enumerated, and the writer says, remember Abraham, man, remember his faith. Remember Moses and and David, and he goes through and he counts all those, but then at the end of all of that, he says, remember David, but then he says, but fix your eyes on Jesus. Remember David, but fix your eyes on Jesus, and here's what he says, the archegos of our faith. And that word there is the same word, the archegos, Jesus Christ, the archegos of our faith. You know what that word is translated? The champion. Now, if you're old enough to remember Carmen, the champion, like, let's don't go there, okay? That's like, that's like old school, like, man, I, that just came to me, holy cow, that just like happened right here. I wasn't even thinking about that. But anyway, you can look it up later. It's something. You'll, if you want to know the Christianity of my youth, there you go. But let's not go there necessarily. Here's what I want you to see. Fix your eyes on Jesus. 
the archegos of our faith. God sent the ultimate David, Jesus Christ, and he was weak like David. He was little, and he saved us through his weakness. He didn't just save us from physical death, but from eternal death. He didn't save us like David at the risk of his life, but at the cost of his life. And he did it by going into the ultimate valley of death to fight the ultimate giant, the giant of sin and death for you. He went and did it as you. And so here's how the gospel works. Jesus Christ has lived the life that you should have lived, a life of perfect obedience to God. And if you believe in him, then the record of obedience that he earned in his life is credited to you as if you were the one who did it. That's right. Because he did it as you, as your legal representative, as your champion. Jesus Christ has died the death that you should have died. He took your record of sin upon himself, paying the just sentence of your disobedience and rebellion. And if you believe in him, then the justice that you deserve to get from God is actually no longer reserved for you. It has been satisfied as if you were the one who died. Because when Jesus died, he died not only for you, he died as you. Jesus Christ has defeated sin and death and hell for you by being your champion so that now, if you put your faith in him, you get all of the benefit of his victory. You get peace with God. You get a righteousness that cannot be improved upon. You don't have to live with a guilty conscience anymore, always trying to do more and more and more and more and more to prove yourself worthy. Stop trying to improve on what Jesus has done. You, you get spiritual power, the Holy Spirit living inside of you, shaping in you the same courage and humility and love that Jesus had. You get the hope of heaven. You get it all. Because your champion has won it for you. And so it's what we just sang. It is finished, all is well. I mean, I wrote it down as soon as we, it is finished, all is well. Because you have a champion. It's not David. It's the Lord Jesus Christ himself who fought not against just the Goliath giant, but against the real giants and has overcome and has conquered death and hell and holds in his hand the keys of Hades and death itself and says, I am the resurrection of the life. And if you believe in me, it is finished, all is well. Okay? But what's the takeaway? Because we got to finish. What's the takeaway? So I've just said, don't be careful. Be careful of thinking that, that, well, let's thread the needle here. What's the takeaway? And I want to shift gears really fast on you when I say this. But do you see what I have as the takeaway there? The takeaway, I think, actually is you are David. Now, you have to be careful of casting yourself in the role of David and moralizing the text, as I said, but you also have to be careful of not moralizing the text because the point, of course, undoubtedly, is that we, we should and we are able to live with the same God-dominated imagination that David did and with the same courage because the battle is the Lord's. And the victory comes through God's work, not our work. So on the one hand, listen, you're not David. You do not accomplish salvation for yourself, and you have to connect What David does here, first with what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for you, conquering sin and death. But at the same time, as you do that, you have to remember that you are David, living in the victory of Christ for you. Resting in his grace, you can live by faith, not by sight. You can see as God sees, and you can live unafraid of whatever lesser giants you might encounter because your champion has already won. It is finished. All is well. It is finished. 
all is well. And so what the, what the heart of faith does is it says, like this old hymn says, it says, upon a life I have not lived, upon a death I have not died. I did not die. Let me say it again. Upon a life I have not lived, upon a death I did not die. Another's life, another's death, I stake my whole eternity. That's the movement of faith. Now, when you, when you believe like that, and when you see Jesus, your champion fighting for you, then courage begins to flood your soul so that you can live with the same kind of courage too. And so let's pray and ask God to do that among us. Can we? So Father, thank you for these words. They are true and they convict us and they challenge us and they confront us and they show us the ugliness of our, of our own cowardice and fear and the way we are dishonoring your name by allowing ourselves to stay in that place of being frozen and afraid to do something for fear of doing the wrong thing or making the wrong decision or, or, um, or just not being sufficient instead of learning the lesson that the battle is indeed the Lord's. And so thank you, Lord Jesus, for the way that you've come and fought for us, that you have conquered the, the, the real giants for us. And now as you send us out of this place, to take up our own weaponry as we, talk, as we read about in Ephesians 6 and to take our stand against whatever evil might be befalling us or whatever evil there might be in the world that needs to be confronted or whatever the evil might be inside of us and the fear that can grip our heart, to take our stand and take the helmet of salvation and the shield of faith and the sword of the Spirit and the, the shoes of the gospel of peace and to fight in our battle that your name might be made known, that your reputation might be recovered, that you might gain a worldwide reputation through us, your people, that we might not in our cowardice drag your name through the mud, but in our courage we might make a name for you because you are worthy. And so we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I do love that song. It is a call to action. So I would say to you, as God now sends us, this is ascending here at the end, arise. And here's what I would say to you this week. Don't go out into this week with sword or with spear, with javelin, but go out into this week in the name of the Lord our God, remembering that the battle is the Lord's and that he will deliver uh, whatever hard thing that you might have to go through into your hands. But here is the name of God. Here is the, the name of God. The character of God is this, that he has pledged for all who put their faith and trust in him uh, that he will never leave you or forsake you, uh, that he will be an ever-present help in time of trouble for you. Right? That he, that he would make up for every deficiency that there might be found in you with his grace and strength. What an amazing God we serve. And so turn your face toward him. Fix your eyes upon Jesus and go now bearing his cross as you follow him. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. And may the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace both now and forevermore. Amen. God bless you. Go in his peace.